Good morning, everyone. I want to introduce to our storyteller this morning. She has been a wonderful member at the church and a dear friend to me over these years. So I want to uh, welcome uh, Lori Lehman. Lori, come on up and tell us your story. Good morning. I wanted to share with you this morning something that's about a big change in my life. I and my daughter, Michelle, who's here visiting with me today, uh, uh, have purchased a piece of property in the city of Blaine. Um, perhaps you know it's the city right on the border um, to Canada. We've had plans drawn up and a builder ready to start construction um, as soon as uh, we receive a permit. All this happened as a result of a sermon given just two months ago by Reverend Leslie Sanders on the power of perception. You see, for a number of years, Michelle has wanted to open a much-needed tutoring center near her school. The Blaine School District doesn't have all the um, advantages of the wealthy district like ours has, and her motto was it has to be local and affordable. I always said to myself, if only I was 10 years younger, I would just love to get involved. But it seemed like impractical and really not really very possible at this point. As Pastor Sanders gave his sermon, I took notes like I always do, and uh, that helps me to stay focused and remember key points of messages. But other than that, I don't remember it making a big impact on me right away. But just a few days later, I suddenly had a vision how all this could happen. Just to make sure I wasn't completely crazy, I sought the counsel of a friend who has had experiences doing um, projects such as this and, um, and makes her very credible. Uh, fi my financial person, I talked to him. And I talked to uh, the accountant um, that used to work with my husband's business. All of them thought it was a great idea, and they all had suggestions that helped me to um, fine-tune my plans. One of them said to me, you're serving the community, helping your daughter, it's economically doable, and you're bored and need a project, <laughs> which was sort of an interesting summation. Within a week, I called my daughter, and here we are, well along in the process. I hope this doesn't make you afraid that God will lead you in some scary direction, but instead we'll see that with the Lord's guidance, uh, life can be a real adventure. Reverend Sanders said, our willingness to change our perceptions directly impacts our effectiveness. So I thank Reverend Sanders for his message. I thank God for revealing how it applied to me, and I thank you for listening to my story. This morning, our scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians. You can follow along your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading verses 3 through 10 of chapter 6 in the New International Version. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, 
hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing but possessing everything. The word of the Lord. Today we're going to talk about slippers. How many of you wore slippers to church today? I wanted to and I planned to, of course. It was my idea, but when it came time to put on shoes this morning, I was raised as a Presbyterian, and I just could not get myself to wear my slippers to preach. It just felt too slovenly to do that. But I come here and somebody says, hey, you're not wearing your slippers, but I brought extra. And so I'm wearing their nasty slippers right now. (laughs) The slippers, though, uh, represent the image I want you to walk away with, a way for you to be reminded of, I think, this really important and powerful truth that we're going to touch on today. We're asking the question, how do we live in this world? And I think, you know, there are many ways to live, but when it comes to this perspective, there's, it's sort of an either-or issue. And the perspective is this, how can we live in the world but not be of it? How can we be in relationship with someone but not be defined by that other person or even defined by the relationship? How do you maintain your own sense of self, your vision, your values, your personality? How do you do that while remaining connected to other people and other things? So for example, if you're at work and your boss just doesn't like you very much, and that's really kind of beginning to get under your skin and it bothers you, it creates a sense of dread and you feel stuck. And How do you do that? How do you go to work if you feel like the person who has authority over you the person that you identify as sort of a lifeline because uh, your employment depends on this person, how do you go to work like that? Or if you're in a marriage, how are you able to stay connected to your spouse and love your spouse and support your spouse, be familiar with your spouse, be intimate, but yet be your own person still? How do you not give over too much power to the people that you're connected to? And for me, one is being a dad. I really, as soon as I know that my kids want something, oh, I want to get it to them so bad. I want them to have it. I want them to have everything. I find some identity in being a provider. And because I have, I grew up with some deprivation as an immigrant, now that, you know, I'm not an immigrant anymore, I want them to have all the things I could never have. And I I told myself, I would never be that parent. 
But here I am, unable to really know how to uh, hold on to my own vision and values for my kids and not sort of get washed over by their wants and desires and asking. And How do you do that? How can you differentiate yourself in the world so that you're not of it? That's a question we're asking today. We read in Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthian church here that somehow he was able to find a way to not be defined by his, his uh, he says, troubles. I am not my troubles. Hardships, distresses, these things are happening all around me, but that's not who I am. In beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, I am not any of these things, though I experience them, though I am affected by them, though I have to figure out how to be in the midst of them, that's not who I am. That's not what I am. In purity, understanding, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, he was able to somehow hold on to these things in the midst of those other things. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. So there's this almost superpower, this magical ability on Paul's part to maintain his true sense of self, his mission his identity, his values, while everything was pressing up against him, raging all around him. He wasn't caught up or defined by the drama that is human existence. And that's really the question I have for us today. How can you do that? How can you be this way when everything is pressing in all around us? How do we keep a kind of distance from it while remaining vulnerable and open. Paul had a pretty complicated relationship with the church in Corinth. They tested what he meant by being in the world but not of it because they were such a rich culture. It was such a powerful city. It tested his ability to be different while remaining connected to these people. He had to practice grace and truth. Not just grace, not just truth, but grace and truth. He had to understand how to walk the fine line between being too negative and staying positive. He had to think long-term and short-term, and he had to stretch his pain threshold. He had to walk with them, even though it was painful and annoying and hard and feeling like it was never going to end right. He somehow found a way to stay close to them. What was the key? We have a clue, verse 3 and 4. It says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Verse 4, Rather, and here's the key phrase here, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every Way in great endurance. And then the long list of all the things he was in the midst of but not defined by. That he was a servant of God. 
Paul had a sense of identity as a servant of God. He knew who God was. He knew why he existed. He was secure in where he was headed. He was not beholden to other people. He was not defined or crushed by the circumstances around him. He maintained his own integrity, his own vision of self in the midst of everything else. He was, through and through, bottom line, a servant of God. And that's really uh, more general than it sounds like here. Even if you're not somebody who believes in God, you need something else other than all the things around you to anchor to. You know this, right? If you go to work and you have drama or tension or discomfort at work, you need something else to ground you, to tell you you're going to be okay, that you are okay, that you're going to make it. You don't have to cave in under the feeling that your boss doesn't like you. How do you do that? To whom do you give that power of definition? Who gets to define you? A great quote that captures this for me, and this is like my now maybe 12th time that I was trying to search and find out the author of this quote. The best guess the internet has is it's a Chinese person named Goi Nasu or something. Uh, But it's just a guess. Basically, it's anonymous. But it's one of my favorite quotes. It says this, an entire sea of water can't sink a ship unless it gets inside the ship. Now, think about this quote. There's two ways to live life. You can focus on the water. That water is raging It's powerful, it can penetrate, it can destroy, it can wreak havoc. So you have a kind of a healthy respect and fear of water. But if you respect the water too much, and if you're too much defined by the nature of water, then you never leave port. Right? You can always focus on the water. Or you can say, you know what? The water is wet. The water will do what it does, but I can do what I do. I'm not going to be defined by the water. Instead, I'm going to turn all that focus and energy towards making sure the hull of my ship is integrous. I am not going to be breached by the water. I'm going to maintain water tightness. And so I don't have to be afraid of the water. I can venture out into the water. I can navigate the water, but I don't have to be defined or limited by the water. This is what God's talking about when he says you have to be in the world, but not of it. Because when you're in the world, you're in the world as my disciples, as servants of God. So Jesus practiced this in his ministry, didn't he? He said, uh, in a, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, they were afraid, for example, to touch lepers. Lepers had to live in a separate colony. And if they ever ventured out outside of that colony, the lepers were required to shout out, unclean, 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 as they walked along so that religious people had enough time to get away from them. Because if they got too proximate to them, the religious people would get defiled. In other words, they stayed away from the water for fear of uh, water leaking in. But Jesus, because he was water tight, 
He's able to go near the leper. In fact, the Bible says Jesus touched the leper. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper became cleansed. Jesus didn't have to be afraid of the leper's contamination because Jesus himself was clean. And it's it's his cleanliness that was infectious and not the leper's disease. That's two very different ways of living. If you live here in the Pacific Northwest, you know this to be true. I heard this quote, you know, six and a half years ago when I first visited here. And the quote was, in Seattle, there is no such thing as bad weather, only bad gear. This week on my day off, I went hiking to Snow Lake. Anybody hike Snow Lake? Yeah, you need some gear, right? I had my micro spikes on so I don't slip. I had waterproof boots on. I can complain about all the streams you have to sort of walk through to get to the lake. Or I could have waterproof shoes. Two ways to live. I can complain about slipping on the spots that are now beginning to get snowy. Or I could have micro spikes on my shoes. I could be cold or I could have layers on. I could slip or I could have trekking poles. But here's the magic of what I did this week. I was carrying a 30-pound pack on my back because it was my stand-up paddleboard. It was my inflatable one. And I hiked it up and then down to the lake, and I got on the water. I can sort of look at the lake and enjoy it, but be kind of afraid of the water. I don't want to get wet. The water is cold. Or I could get good gear. I can get on the water. And I will always savor all the admiration I receive from all those hikers whose jaws are dropped that somebody would trek up the mountain with a paddleboard and then get on Snow Lake, something that that had not even occurred to them. And I got to explore the perimeter of the lake, and it was wonderful and beautiful and just magical. I felt like I was standing at the foot of Mount Mordor. There's so many rocky, jagged things going on. But it's because I had the right gear, I can enter the water without being afraid of the water or being defined by the water. So that's two ways to live. And that's what Paul is saying. I've had more pain and trauma and circumstances and persecution than anybody should be able to handle. But I'm able to handle it. My whole stayed tight. Because I am a servant of God. I know who God is and I know whose I am. And that defined him, that carried him through, that made him waterproof, bulletproof, immune. Luke 14, 26 says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you take sort of a psychological lens to this passage, what this passage is talking about is what psychologists call self-differentiation. You know, as you grow up as a kid, you're not as differentiated from your parents. You're sort of an extension of them, of their will, of their values, of their do's and their don'ts. But as you get older, you begin to differentiate from your parents. You say, oh, that's how my mom is. That's what my dad thinks, but that's not who I am. You begin to draw sort of some distance from them. Right? You become your own person. That's self-differentiation. And then you go off to college and you go on this journey of, quote-unquote, finding yourself. And then you find yourself and you're excited to do what you believe in. 
and live the way you feel you should. You want to become independent according to you. That's where psychology stops. That you have to figure out who you are and what you want and, and what you don't want and how you're going to live. The Bible takes the self-differentiation, turns it up on its head. This, this little verse that Jesus says, defining what discipleship is, says this. He says, it doesn't matter what your father thinks. You've got to figure out how to hate him. You've got to figure out how to hate your mom, too. It doesn't matter what your mom thinks. Okay? It doesn't matter what your wife thinks or your husband thinks. They don't get to define you. Your children, you love them, you care about them, you would give your life for them, but you're not defined by them. Your brothers and sisters, your peers, your contemporaries, you know, the us group that you belong to, they don't get to define you either, right? And that's all good, that's self-differentiation, but then look how ultimate Jesus takes it. He says, and even his own life. Saying, I don't care what you think, that's great. But that's an attitude. And then he says, I also don't care what I think. Now that's spirituality. There's power and depth there. Because the only person who has the right and the might, who is worthy of defining power over us, is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the one who gets to define you because he created you. He created the world. And he knows exactly how he made you and how he wants you to be in the world. And that sets me free. Because then it's not about finding me. Finding me is just a means to finding Christ who does me better than I can. I don't want defining power over myself. I'm not that reliable. I'm not that smart. I'm not that consistent. If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm mostly just telling you how I feel at the moment. It doesn't mean anything. Feelings come and go. Jesus alone gets to tell me how I'm doing because he's got the long view. He understands what's going on because it's his work in me. This is his life, his world, his story. He's writing it. He's the author and the finisher. He's the great architect. He is the Lord. And so this idea of Lord, Jesus being Lord, simply means that Jesus is the defining center of gravity. I'm always pulled towards him. I'm not susceptible to the gravity of all these other lesser stars tugging away at me. I orbit around Jesus because he alone is worthy of orbit. And so Jesus isn't just my savior. He's not just helping me or serving me or a good friend to me. No, I serve him. And that's the radical Christian message. You don't just self-differentiate from others. It's not just your boss or your spouse or your kids or your peers or the culture that you differentiate from. You differentiate even from yourself. It's not, what do I want? What do I feel like? That's not the final question. The question is, what should I do? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to be? What do I believe in? And how do I live this out? Consequences be what they may. I'll try to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. But ultimately, if I die, I die. Because Jesus is my defining center of gravity.
I'm not defined by anything outside of me. I'm not defined by anything inside of me except for Christ. And this is what Christian freedom is. That nothing else gets to be Lord. Nothing else gets to have that kind of power over me. Your allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And so as far as everybody else, including yourself, is concerned, it can look and feel like you hate them. It's because you're choosing Christ. If ever you have to choose between Christ and others, you will always choose Christ. This is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ. And if you're being formed spiritually, this is the direction of your formation. And so uh, for application, this is really the image I want you to take away with. And this is another way to uh, put the same thing. And if you must know, this quote is uh, for Democratic Senator Al Franken. And may have lost half the people in the room. But there's truth here. It's easier to put on slippers than to carpet the whole world. You can either build a watertight vessel or you can try to dry out, dry out all the seas of the world so that you can walk on it. Which is easier, to put on slippers or to carpet the world? How can you be in the world but not of it? How do you have Jesus Christ as Lord, as your center of gravity? How can you be differentiated from everyone and everything while remaining connected to everyone and everything? How do you defocus the water and get airtight? How do you put on slippers rather than trying to carpet the whole world? Well, at our church, we have three ways that I want to ask us to uh, be a church. Number one, we've been using this word belong. What does it mean to belong? We want to be a church where everyone feels a sense of belonging here. And in order for that to happen, it means you have to be a really watertight, self-differentiated, geared-up vessel so that you're not threatened by the other people that are all around you, the sea of people around you, the world of people around you. You're not threatened by them. You have to be like Jesus who can accept people exactly as they are, exactly where their morality is at, exactly where their philosophy is at, exactly where their politics are at, exactly where their past is at. You accept them just as they are, because you're not threatened by them. You can walk close to them. You can walk with them. You can even touch them the way Jesus touched lepers. That's what you're called to do, to stay at the table and to invite others to the table. Do you know that you are not to be defined by your political party? That's not Christian. You may be a Republican, you may be a Democrat, but you are not your voting block. That's not who you are. You don't get to say, that's what I am. You belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. At any moment, you have to be free to hate everything else. You have to be willing to hate your political party. 
If you ever have to choose between your political party and Jesus, you have to choose Jesus. I don't care who you voted for. God doesn't care who you voted for. That's not you. Let it go. Put it in its place. Do you sense some anger, some intensity from me right now? You, your job, if you are a follower of Christ, is to figure out how to depoliticize your faith. You are drinking the American Kool-Aid. And it's going to kill you. Because Jesus is the only thing from whom life emanates. And he's the only one worthy of putting into the center of who and what you are. You have to figure out how to set the table, how to stay at the table, how to invite others and be a servant of the table here at church, how to make everyone belong to radically and fearlessly accept people just as they are in Jesus' name. How do you do that? That's what we're trying to crack. That's the code we're trying to crack here at the church. Second is become. You are called to embody an integrating faith, meaning all truth is God's truth. You don't get to say, I'm a Christian, so I only, I only read the Bible. You can't do that. You don't have the right to do that. you got to read all different kinds of books, all different schools of thought and philosophies. You have to educate yourself. You have to do research. You have to study. You have to care. You have to open up. You have to say, well, that quote is from Al Franken, and I'm a Republican, but he has some good points he's making. you got to know how to do that. Oh, Peter's always talking about sciences and psychology. I'm not sure he's a, really a true preacher because he's not only preaching from the Bible. You have to figure out how to listen to people like me and integrate it into your faith because your becoming process is from Christ and towards Christ, you don't have to be afraid of these bodies of knowledge. It's all from God anyways. And then finally, we have this call to engage. Belong, become, and engage. You have to figure out how to get out there. I mean, some of the stories are so controversial and scandalous in Scripture. The first miracle recorded in the book of John you know what Jesus did? He was at a party. And everybody was drunk off their toes. Just, they had drunk all the wine. Barrels of wine were gone. Think about this. And Jesus is at the wedding, and not exaggerating. And he makes more wine. In fact, the best wine that people have ever tasted Four people at a party that were already drunk. Now, I'm not going to try to interpret that for you. It's just recorded in Scripture that way. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to enter into culture with that kind of relevancy? You know, I mean, if you, if you don't know uh, Eastern culture, it's, it's just defined by this idea of shame. And so for the host to run out of wine, that was absolutely humiliating for the host. I don't know. Maybe Jesus saw that as an opportunity to love on the host. 
I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't explain. We know that the disciples and his mom saw this, and this was the first time they put their faith in him. They put their trust in him. They said, oh, this is divine. There's something of God here. Because these disciples were first following John the Baptist, and they were switching churches to go to Jesus' church. But they were torn. They hadn't decided yet. Jesus touched the leper, as I said. So controversial. Jesus ate with tax collectors. Now, when you ate with people back in the day, it, it signaled to everyone that you were accepting them as they are. So you only dined with people that were part of the us group. You never dined with them. You only dined with us. And here Jesus was dining with them. What do you think about that? Do you know how to enter into enemy territory as a servant of God? Without fear, without anxiety, without shaking, without feeling threatened? Secure in who you are and whose you are, you enter in and you eat for the sake of the long-term game to know how to love people when they need your love. How do you engage culture in such a time as this? You can sit there and complain about millennials. You can sit there and complain about radical liberal agendas. You can focus on the water, or you can focus on how you gear up to enter into the storm so that you can be a redemptive agent, a catalyst for change in Jesus' name, to be salt and light. I want to close by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. I want to ask you to pray. Close your eyes. And as I lead us in prayer, I'm going to give you a chance to say yes and amen to certain prayers. And these are prayers of repentance or you changing, sort of on the record saying, God, I don't want that. I want this other thing. I'm going to say it to you now. Okay? The first one is this. I repent of over-identification with my political party or voting block. If I'm going to be salt and light in our time, Today, here, now, my identity has to be in Christ. I have to be willing to hate my mother and father and brother and sisters and my spouse and even my own self and definitely my political affiliation because I belong to Christ. One God, one Lord, for him and through him. Go ahead and say amen to that if that's you. I have judged and hated people that were not like me. 
and I repent of my fear and my disgust. If that's you, say amen. I've been defined by my work. I've been defined by my relationships. I've given power over to people to tell me how I should feel, how I'm doing. I've let other pressures get to me. I am not them. I belong to Christ. No other. If that's you, say amen. I want to live for God and God alone, for I exist for him. I want to live for one Lord, Jesus Christ, for I exist through him. If that's you, say amen. 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 So God, we say amen to you. We belong to you. Nobody else has say-so in our life. You alone are the defining center of gravity for us. Help us to know how to be salt and light in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.